Um, we're in a sermon series called uh, Polarized, and uh, we've been in this series just for one week now, and uh, we're looking at just how we as a church can, can live as one in a world that has become very, very divided and very, very polarized. And uh, for me as a dad, um, one of the most heart-wrenching moments of parenthood is that moment that you drop your kid off at school for the first time. And if you've never had that experience before, let me just unpack with, with you, give you a little bit of a glimpse as to what, what happens on that moment. Um, I, I understand that for many parents, that moment where you drop your kid off at school for the first time is not a heart-wrenching moment. It's more of a moment of jubilee and freedom and heading out on the town with, with all the other moms or whatever. But for me, for the most part, it's, it's been a very heart-wrenching moment for a couple reasons. One of them is because your, your kid is growing up and those like first years of childhood are no longer there. They're in the past and there's all the sadness that goes with that. And then the other reason is there, there's this new kind of anxiety. Your child has kind of been cocooning your home to a certain extent and now you're kind of dropping them off out there in the big, bad, dangerous world all on, on their own. And for me, it was always the hardest with our first child because uh, it was just brand new territory. Tori, we have five kids, for those of you don't, that don't know, and Tori's our oldest. And I remember dropping her off the first day of kindergarten, and it was like, uh, I remember just like it was yesterday, Becky and I walked her up to Mrs. Harmon's class there at, at the, kinder, the school that she was going to, and we helped her find the little coat rack there and hang up her, her little jacket and put her little lunch pail in the little slot down there, and then we walked her over to her desk. And we still had some time left before school started. And so we took her out to the playground. And we didn't want to leave her, though. We just didn't want to, like, leave her out there. And so we kind of hung out. But Tori has always been our little Miss Independent. So she was kind of shooing us off, even at five years old. And so we took off. And we just kind of sat there in our van. And we watched her from a distance. And I didn't see anybody playing with her. And she was just swinging away on the monkey bars by herself. I thought, oh no, my poor kid is going to be a reject all her life because nobody's playing with her. And just, you know, all these thoughts that go through your mind. And, and, and I just felt like we were throwing her to the wolves. And this was just kindergarten. <laughs> and then you drop them off at that first day of middle school. And it's a whole different deal. It's worse um, middle school can be an absolute shark tank. Middle schoolers can be so mean. They don't have a filter on their mouths. They just say whatever pops into their, their head. And you know that you're putting your kids out there where they're going to they're gonna be tempted with all kinds of brand new colorful vocabulary and new kinds of substances lurking behind every locker. Then it's high school. Girl crazed boys jacked up on testosterone. And... And, you, and I know because I was there at one time. There's people making out in the halls, and there's the social media with all the bullying, and then there's the, the expletive lace tunes that make the people that I grew up on, like Twisted Sister and ACDC, make them like, look like angels. And, and, and with all that, you would think I'd be prepared for college. Not a chance. Dropping Tori off at college was the absolute worst. Worse. It was Wazoo, uh, Pullman, way on the east side of the state where there's nothing to do except go to school and party. And her actual dorm room was kind of literally right at the start of Greek Row with frat houses and, and more boys and, and who knows what going on inside of those places. Professors that are very well versed in secular humanism and teaching her stuff that I know goes com completely contrary 
to what we've taught her growing up. And the worst part about college, though, is, is that now she was going to be living in a whole separate part of the country from where we were at. We weren't just leaving her for half of the day, and then at the end of the day, she was going to be coming back home, and we'd talk things over at dinner and talk, find out how her day went. We were going to be, like, right there all the time. No, we were leaving her. And we drove away thinking, where in the world did time just go? And as you leave them in that rearview mirror, you're kind of left with a sense of helplessness. Your involvement in their lives has just changed drastically. They are on their own to a very large extent. And I wonder if Jesus was feeling a little bit of, of, of this kind of feeling in those final moments with his disciples as he's preparing to go to the cross and then ascend back up into heaven. You know, just before the cross, he's there with them all in the upper room. There's, it, it, at one time it was 12 disciples, and now it's 11 disciples because Judas has already hatched this, this plot and this plan to betray Jesus, and he's already taken off. And so they're all there, the 11 disciples and Jesus in the upper room, and they've been following him so closely for three years. They still don't seem to have a clue who or what Jesus is all about. Um, Peter, in his pride, has just outright refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet. Moments later, Jesus is predicting how Peter is going to flat out deny him three times. Thomas can't seem to grasp what Jesus is up to. Philip doesn't understand who Jesus is, to which Jesus responds, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? You almost get the sense that Jesus is kind of wondering if these guys maybe aren't quite ready for him to leave. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas who was following Jesus, he's just waiting for Jesus to step up and be a great, big, awesome political leader revealing himself to the world. And as Jesus is teaching them about love and about how he's revealed himself to them, Judas comes along and says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And it doesn't seem like he and the others are ready for Jesus to leave. They seem disoriented. They seem confused. And at one point in the upper room, the Bible says that they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Now, when Tori and Taylor, my two oldest, left home for the first time, on top of, of the sadness and the worry that, that's there in that, that just emotional moment there was this nagging thought that I just could not shake and maybe some of you parents that have had th this moment dropping your kids off at college or wherever have had this this nagging thought too but the thought I just kept thinking was there's just so much more I want to say to them so much more that I want them to to know and so much more I want them to learn but my time is done it's done and in that moment of helplessness there's only one thing left for you to do. You pray. And you pray like there is no tomorrow. And Jesus is no different. He's getting ready to leave the, the, these confused, disoriented, not, re not quite ready yet disciples. And what does he do? He prays. And as he does, you, there's this, this weightiness. There's a sense of urgency to this prayer that, that he's He's going to pray. And the reason 
for this, this urgency and this weightiness is not only that he's about to leave them, but he's also about to leave them in a certain place. He's about to leave them in a hostile, dangerous world. And like a parent dropping off their kids for the first time, Jesus desperately prays. And his prayer goes like this. He, he prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name. Protect them. And praying for protection is, you know, it's probably one of the more common things that, that we pray for in the church, isn't it? We pray for protection all the time. And in a world where safety is, is valued so, so highly, I mean, our, in, in our country, we just value safety, safety first. You know, you hear that mantra all the time, safety first. And in, in this world, when, when we pray for protection, it's usually that we'd have a safe trip to grandma's house, or that our kids wouldn't face any rejection in school, or, or get their feelings hurt. Um, when my two oldest moved out, I was praying things like, God, protect my daughters from getting hurt, protect them from fear, protect them from false teaching, worldly values, all that kind of stuff. Maybe depending on which side of the, the political spectrum that you, you stand on, you, you pray against certain isms infiltrating the world. God, protect us from socialism, protect us from communism, or that he'd protect us from the dangers of capitalism or materialism. But one of the things that I've noticed about our prayers for protection is that what we're asking protection from is a lot different than what Jesus is asking that we be protected from. And having been around the church for, for a long time, I've grown up in the church, and this prayer that we're, we're, we're going through is found in John chapter 17. It's a very well-known prayer of Jesus. It's a very well-preached pre uh, passage of Scripture. And having grown up in the church and hearing this passage preached and reading about it, reading articles, whatever, I think we make the mistake of thinking that when Jesus is praying for protection here, that he's praying in the same way that you and I would pray if we were praying for protection. We think that he's praying that his disciples wouldn't face rejection from people. We think he's praying that they wouldn't be physically harmed. Or he's praying that they're not going to face persecution or that they'd be protected from a hard life or that he, he's praying that life would somehow be just a little safer, a little easier, a little more comfortable for them. After all, they've known him and they serve God Almighty. But Jesus isn't praying for that kind of protection at all. And when you stop and think about it, why would he pray for that kind of protection? It was Jesus who said to his disciples, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. And then he'd go on to say, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. You're going to, so, sheep among wolves, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be flogged. He wasn't saying you might be. He says, this is going to happen. Oh, and by the way, he goes on to say, you will be hated by everyone because of me. And as Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples, he knows that he's sending them out into a world that isn't safe, and he knew they would suffer. He knew that some of his disciples would even be tortured and martyred for their faith. He knows that the same hostility, the same vitriol that's going to be thrown at him on his way to the cross 
is also going to be thrown against his disciples, he knows that this suffering, this is their calling in life to suffer as Jesus did. So he can't be praying for protection against that. No, he must be praying for protection against something else. And we get to the answer to what that something else is in the second half of verse 11. What did he pray? He prays, Holy Father, protect them so that they may be one as we are one. And Jesus is praying that they would be protected from the division, from the strife, and from the polarization that exists in the world in which they live, in the world in which we live. And then to emphasize the importance of this even more, a little later on in that same prayer in John 17, he prays this. He prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's all of us, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the glory that you gave me, that they may be one. Here it is again. That they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. So here is again. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus knows that, that you and I live in a hyper-polarized world. Like we talked about last week, the world in which we live, it's divided over everything. Divided over COVID, divided over masks, divided over vaccines, divided over politics, divided over race. We are divided. And make no mistake about it, the world in which we live has always been divided. You know, sometimes we, we like to look in the past through these rose-colored lenses, and we've got this picture like it wasn't always this way, and, and things have just become worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. No, the world we live in has always been divided. I mean, right here in our own nation, we had a civil war at one point. Polarization has, has always, always existed. This world that we live in is polarized, divided. And so Jesus prays, and he prays that his followers would be protected. And of all the things that he prays that they'd be protected from, he prays that they would be protected from being polarized and divided. He prays that instead they would be one as him and the Father are one. Now, why would he pray that they would be protected from division and polarization? Why would he pray that they would be one, that they'd be brought to complete unity? I mean, he's getting ready to leave them, going to the cross and ascending up into heaven. Why of all things to be praying for, does he pray for this? I mean, think about that moment that, that they're in back there. And Jesus in that moment prays for, for oneness. Why? Here's the reason. Jesus prays for unity because he knows that without unity, the mission won't be accomplished. The mission that we are called to as a church will never be accomplished if there is division, if there is strife, if there is polarization in the church. Because without unity, the name of Jesus isn't honored. It's dishonored. Without unity, the world doesn't see a love that's compelling and attractive. No, it sees a division and strife that is actually repulsive. Without unity, lost people aren't drawn to the person of Jesus. Instead, 
they look at a divided, polarized church, the bride of Christ, and they go, I don't want to be a part of that. And, and they're pushed, they're pushed away instead of drawn to Jesus. And so Jesus prays that they'd be brought to complete unity. And then why? He says, because then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When there's the vision of polarization, the mission to see Jesus lifted high will not happen. It won't happen. And Jesus knows this. And, and you know who, who else knows this? We have an enemy, the devil, and he is not stupid. He, he's, he's, he's not new to this. He's been around for an awful long time. He's cunning. He, he, he is well-versed in battle strategies. And one of the most common battle strategies throughout the ages is, is so common that it even has a name, Divide et Impera. And you may not have heard that phrase, but you've heard the phrase divide and rule. You may not have heard that, but we're all familiar with divide and conquer. It is a strategy that has been used in warfare throughout the ages. Divide and conquer. Wise generals have known that if you are outmanned, if you are outpowered, if, if you are up against a foe that you have no chance against because you're just a little guy, they, wise generals have known that the best way to win in that situation is to get the enemy fighting against themselves. To get them divided. And then you can go in and conquer your opponent divided and they just can't win. You ever see that movie, Remember the Titans? Come on, classic movie. If you have not seen Remember the Titans, go home this afternoon, watch Remember the Titans. Classic movie. But it's this movie about this football team from this high school called Virginia High School. And it's based on a true story back in the, the uh, early 70s. And this school had just recently um, become desegregated. But it was still struggling with all kinds of racial prejudice, and uh, there was just lots of fighting. And so the school decides to, to ease the racial tensions. They're going to hire, this mostly white school is going to hire a black coach, Coach Boone. And so Coach Boone comes on the scene, and he's trying to bring some unity, but it's just not happening. They are, are just more and more divided, and there's fighting, and just all kinds of bad stuff going on. And so what does he do? He takes them off to football camp. They head off in the middle of nowhere. And one morning, in the middle of all the tension that was happening at football camp, Coach Boone comes in. It's like 4 o'clock in the morning. It's still dark. And he gets everybody out of bed. He's like, guys, we are going for a run. Let's go. And they go jogging through the forest. And as the, the, the movie shows the, the the, the background, it's pitch dark, and it slowly starts to get brighter and brighter and brighter. And just as the sun is about to come up, the, the football team comes wandering onto this open field, and they're just all huffing and puffing, all out of breath. And Coach Boone goes, guys, do you know where we are? This is Gettysburg. This is Gettysburg. And then he has this, this, great, this great line. He says that they're in a place where 50,000 men died fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves 100 years later. And then he says this, take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. Oneness, unity in the church. You gotta understand something. It is opposed 
<laughs> Lovely. It's a pose. We have to remember this. I'm going to say that one more time. Unity, oneness in the church is opposed. Division and polarization. You know, over the last several years, uh, if you've been watching any of the news or, or some of this, the, the documentaries that are out there, a big deal has been made about how this polarization and division that's happening in our nation, it's happening through social media, and there's Russian and Chinese agents or whatever that are, are, are pitting us against each other. Or, or maybe you've, you've heard things like there's these political parties and extremist groups, whatever, that are, are trying to get us to, to go against each other. Uh-uh. At the heart of it, division and polarization is from the enemy, the devil, who came to steal, kill, and destroy. The, 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 the polarization, division, that's where it stems from. Not from that person, not through that big whatever out there. At the end of the day, it comes from the enemy. Because he knows that when we come together in a spirit of love and humility, despite our differences, when we come together around the person of Jesus, that we will be able to live out the mission for what Jesus called us to on this earth. That mission to, to, to make, make him known here in this world. And so that enemy, he, he opposes it. And, and Jesus comes along and he, he prays, don't let there be unity, let there be oneness. Growing up in the church, there were times when the topic of unity would pop up. And most of the time, um, it was one of these, and if you've been in church world for a while, I'm sure you've experienced this at some point, but it usually seemed to pop up. Like once a year, we, we would have a, we, the, all the churches in the town, um, that never really were together and never really worked together and mostly just like gossip and backbiting and all this kind of stuff. We'd all come together for a unity service. And uh, we used to actually call them joint services way back in the day, but that's not a good, good uh, uh, thing to call any kind of service these days. But uh, so it became known as a unity service. And uh, we, we would all come together, and we would all sing songs, and, and we would have these services um, hoping that out of these things, uh, unity would happen. And at the end of the day, though, that's, that's not exactly what, what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us to unity for the sake of unity. He's not calling us to, to, to just come together and be together so that we can have warm, fuzzy feelings and so that we don't have to worry about the unpleasant feelings of strife and people not liking one another. No, he wants us to come together for a much bigger purpose than that. And, and just going after unity for the sake of unity is, is missing it. And getting along for the sake of, uh, just for the sake of unity, it's not Jesus' John 17 prayer. He is after unity for the sake of mission. As his church, we have been, been called to this. One author, G.L. Burcher is this guy's name that I came across this last week. He talked about how instead of gazing at our internal differences, it's, it's imperative, he says, in a hostile, dangerous world, to concentrate on our, our efforts on, on mission. On mission. 
This is our calling and our purpose as followers of Jesus. This is the reason that we resist polarization, that we resist division, that we, we do everything that we can to fight against that. It's because we've been given this incredible mission as a church. And, and right now in the world, the lack of unity within the church is seriously hampering our effectiveness in the mission. And some of the issues are, are, are complex. You know, I'm not standing up here this morning and saying that this is an easy thing that, that we just got to f- just come together and get along. No, some of these issues are complex. And, and in this series, I'm, uh, we're, we're going to be getting into some of this. It's not because it's not about just coming together and just ignoring differences and, 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 and just shoving stuff under the carpet. No, it's actually true unity. It's coming together. It's working through the tough stuff. It's not coming together and watering down truth. You know, the church has made that mistake over the years. Like, let's just water down truth, and let's just get rid of the, 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 the essentials of the faith so that we can have, just all get along and be one happy family singing Kumbaya together. No, it's not about that. And we'll be talking about that in this series, but, but, how, but how do, we, how do we, we, come, do we come together? And when you look at the greater mission we're called to, so many of, of the dividing issues, though, that we divide over, they actually are pretty trivial and meaninglessness, meaningless. You know, I remember growing up, too, in the church, one of the big things that seemed to be, it, it kind of became a joke, uh, eventually, was how churches would divide over the color of the carpet. Thank God this is not that church. Um, but we divide over some silly things. And, and our posture, though, that Christ calls us to is to be a people that are so focused on Him, to be a people that are so focused on the mission that we have in this world that we go, okay, we, we have to come together if that's going to happen. We have to come together. We have to live as one. And, 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 I, and just think about what happens when the church comes together. Just think about what, what, what can happen. Remember the Titans. I mean, they come together, and what happens? They, they just go and they kick butt as a football team. We know how this works. It works, it, it works with, with armies. It works with sports teams. When you come together, despite your differences, anything is possible. In fact, in, in, in the scripture, we read in Acts chapter 2 how the church, they're in this place. Again, they're, they're in some kind of upper room. And as they're together, the Bible says they're all together in one place. And what happens in that moment? God comes in, the Holy Spirit moves, the church is birthed, and, and, the, and, and the mission of Christ explodes in the world. And God is calling us today as a church to no left no less. He's calling us to be a church that fights for unity, that, that, that pushes against division and polarization, that comes together for the sake of the mission, that comes together so that the name of Jesus will be lifted high. And, by, and just by the way, this, this isn't just for us as a corporate church. It works the same way when, when you're with your families. You know, so often as parents, we don't want to have fighting in our home and bickering and division and all that just because we want to have the warm feelings of just not having to deal with all that. But your family has a mission as well. Your family has been placed in the neighborhood that you're in, the school that you're in, the city that you're in for a purpose. 
And, and when you come together as a family, I mean, it is a beautiful thing when a family comes together and they've got purpose and there's oneness and they work through their differences and all that kind of stuff, but they, they fight for unity. Anything is possible. And let's be that church. Let's be that church that today goes, yes, the, the mission of Jesus is too great for us to ever settle for division. The, the mission of Jesus is too great for us to ever settle for being polarized. There are people in our neighborhoods. There are people in our cities. There are coworkers that we work with that will, in coming to Jesus, it's going to be a huge roadblock if the church is not one. And so we decide today we are going to be that church that pursues unity no matter what because the mission of Jesus, the people that we're trying to reach, it is too important to settle for anything less. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, Lord, I would just pray, God, the same prayer, Lord, that you prayed for us, that God, we would be one as you and the Father are one. Lord, it amazes me that you, you didn't just pray for, for unity, you prayed for complete unity. Complete unity. And Lord, I've got lots of questions about what exactly that means and exactly how do we go about that that we're, I'm excited to get into over the next several weeks. But God, it, it baffles me this morning that Jesus, you didn't settle for a partial unity, God. You prayed for complete unity. And God, I pray the same thing for us, God, as a church. God, I pray specifically for CTK Ferndale, God, for those that call this church home, that Jesus, something would just... Right now, God, in this moment, that God, something would happen deep down in our souls where we would just have a resolve that would go, I, I'm not going to settle for anything less. I'm not, I'm not going to settle for, for gossip, for backbiting, for, for, for dividing over trivial matters. I'm going to be that person that takes the posture of a servant and pursues unity pursues oneness with my brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what that's going to take. And God, I pray that, that Jesus, our motivation for that, God, would be the world around us that's lost, that's broken, God, that doesn't know you. God, help that to be the thing that God stays in front of us and motivates us to pursue unity, God, no matter what the cost. And Jesus, I just want to pray, Lord, for us God, in the coming uh, weeks and months, God, we're still, God, just in such, everything's so strange and still so different, um, God, for us as a church family. But God, I know that, Jesus, one of the things that you want to do is lay a foundation of oneness and unity for the, for the, for the, for the sake of the mission, God, that you're going to do through us, God, in the world in which we live. So I just invite you, Holy Spirit, to do that among us. And Lord, I pray, Jesus, if there's anybody here, God, who's just got caught up in strife and caught up in bickering, God, they're just caught up in arguing about things that, God, in the big picture just don't matter. God, things that, especially when you're thinking about souls going to a lost eternity, God, the, the things that we get so caught up in, God, their importance just diminishes, God, when we think about what's really at stake here. But God, if there's anybody that's just been caught up, God, I pray that today would be a turning moment, a shift in their, their lives. 
that God, moving forward, Jesus, they would pursue love and humility. They pursue grace and they pursue truth. God, for the families, God, that are in this room, God, even, even marriages, God, where there's just been division and they, they just can't get going on in the same direction because there's just, God, so many things to argue and to fight about and the distance has formed. Lord, I pray that there be a new resolve, God, in marriages today, a new resolve in, in families, God, to come together for the sake of the mission, God, that you've called us to. So Holy Spirit, would you help? Would you come and just bring life, God, where there's death and where there's brokenness? Bring life, I pray. And Lord, I just want to, God, lift up anybody today, God, who's, who's here and who's struggling, who's going through something, who's maybe distant from you. God, I just want to pray, Jesus, that you would make yourself known to them, that Jesus, you would touch their heart, their soul. God, someone maybe that's watching online who's just really struggling today. God, I pray, Jesus, that you'd meet them right there in their home, that they would know that you're for them, that you're not against them, that you love them, that you came to give them hope and an amazing, glorious future. Lift them up. Increase our faith. Increase our love for you. Increase our love for one another, I pray. In your name, Jesus, and everybody said, Amen.